It's Thursday, May 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. With just over 60 days to go before the Olympics are set to begin in Tokyo, a prominent group of doctors and a majority of those polled in Japan are calling for them to be canceled once more. New COVID cases have surged, and the vaccination rollout remains very slow due to a number of reasons. Less than 2% of the population in Japan is fully vaccinated. Jeff Tracy, sports reporter at Axios, joins us for more. Next, what's behind the sudden drop in Bitcoin? This week, Bitcoin fell as much as 30%, and other cryptocurrencies also took a hit. We've seen some institutional support drop with Tesla no longer accepting Bitcoin and regulatory concerns as China banned financial companies from providing services for crypto trading. Jesse Pound, markets and investing reporter at CNBC, joins us for what to know. Finally, a growing body of research is showing that dogs can sniff out COVID-19. These dogs can be trained relatively quickly and have a pretty good success rate, sometimes doing better than rapid antigen tests. Some companies and countries are now getting ready to deploy these pups to help screen large amounts of people quickly for things like sporting events and more. Ruth Bender, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how dogs can detect the coronavirus. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The fact that we are so late for the vaccination, uh, it's dangerous to host uh, the big uh, international uh, event from all over the world. Uh, so uh, it, it's, the risk is too big. And, you know, uh, I'm against having uh, Tokyo Olympics this year. Joining us now is Jeff Tracy, sports reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Of course. Thanks for having me. The upcoming Olympics, slated to start on July 23rd, so fairly soon, uh, are starting to get a lot of uh, negative headlines again. Uh, it seems that Japan has had a, an uptick in cases. Their vaccine rollout hasn't gone as planned. It's a very slow rollout right now. And uh, I think there was a, a, an organization of uh, Tokyo medical practitioners, uh, about 6,000 doctors that said that they need to cancel the upcoming Olympics. Uh, so it's starting to become a problem. Jeff, tell us what we're seeing out there. Yeah, uh, well, you just summed it up pretty well, actually. As you said, their cases are really, really rising right now. It's the worst surge since January, which was their previous worst surge. They had, uh, I think, five straight days with a seven-day rolling average of over 6,000 new cases, which is just way more than they've been having in the past, uh, you know, due to the new variants that are even more contagious. But, you know, the issue is that they're not also rolling out vaccines fast enough to sort of combat that. There's a few different issues going on there. They don't make their own vaccines, which is the first thing. So they rely on foreign supply, which they do have, but it took a really long time to even start vaccinating people. They are a particularly skeptical culture in terms of taking foreign vaccines. They've had some really bad things happen in the last hundred years on that front. So they are reasonably skeptical about it, but there was testing done by Pfizer that every other country that accepted those vaccines accepted the results, but they really wanted to uh, do even more testing on their own, which delayed the timeline. Finally, they uh, got it approved, but they only allow doctors and nurses to vaccinate people. So there's just not enough people to vaccinate. And Pfizer is the only vaccine that they have currently approved. You know, obviously here in the States, we have Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. They're barely scratching the surface on, on approving Moderna. 
Uh, I think they're possibly looking into AstraZeneca as part of their vaccine program, but they only have the one right now. Right. They only have the one working on approving the others. You know, that even isn't the biggest problem because they have a, a pretty big supply of the Pfizer. So they have plenty of that to vaccinate everyone. Of course, getting more will be better, but it's really those other factors, you know, namely that lack of approved administrators of the vaccine uh, that's really slowing everything down right now. You know, fewer than 2% of the population is fully vaccinated compared to the U.S., where we've got, I think, 38% uh, fully vaccinated. So really lagging behind. And given that the Olympics, as you say, you know, 65 days away, it's not trending in the right direction right now. As I mentioned, this group of doctors said that we need to cancel it. There's towns that were registered to host athletes out there that are not going to do it anymore. I think there's polls out there that say at least a majority, 59%, I think it was, of people in Japan said that they shouldn't have them. So even uh, locally there, you know, the opposition is kind of growing. Again, it's really stemming from just overburdening an already stretched medical system. So because their cases are rising so much, think back to the U.S. last year at our worst times when you were looking around and ICU beds were filling up. I can't speak to exactly what the number of bed capacity they have there, but it's a similar thing where just their medical resources are really stretched in right now. And they fear, perhaps reasonably, that even though foreign spectators are not allowed to come, there will be well over 10,000 athletes, staff, you know, media coming into Japan for these games. And regardless of their own vaccine protocol. It's just a lot more people coming into a place that already is stretched thin and surging in cases. And they're worried uh, what happens when that many people come in. And so, as you say, this group of 6,000 doctors, these towns meant to host just Japanese people in general who are polled, overwhelming majority are saying that these games should not go forward. The International Olympic Committee is telling Japan, hey, don't worry, We've uh, been able to pull off other big sporting events around the world since this has happened. So rest assured, we're going to have safe games. But, you know, as I mentioned, (laughs) people just aren't believing it right now. So uh, have any other countries weighed in on any of this stuff yet? In terms of athletes, obviously, it feels like there needs to be some sort of balance struck here. It's not just another event that, you know, people hope don't get canceled. These are very unique. These are the Olympics. People train their entire lives for this. And obviously there are a handful of, you know, NBA players, other people who have very lucrative careers. But money aside, this is just so much pride for these 10 plus thousand athletes who just want their one chance. They already are delayed by a year. Then they're going to want to do everything in their power to make these games go forward. Jeff Tracy, sports reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much again. You know, whether Elon is goading these moves into happening, I think is sort of hard to say specifically. But his changing mood with regards to one cryptocurrency or another are definitely a signal of how they will trade in the near future. Joining us now is Jesse Pound. Markets and investing reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me. The cryptocurrency market has always been pretty volatile. Big ups, big downs. Right now, we just saw Bitcoin fall as much as 30%. A bunch of the other uh, major cryptocurrencies also falling down a little bit. There's a number of reasons at play. I mean, for Bitcoin specifically, you know, some news out of Tesla and Elon Musk kind of threw them for a loop. We're seeing regulations by the Chinese government 
that is also causing some problems. So, Jesse, tell us what's going on with cryptocurrencies right now and why they're down. This had been a pullback that I think had been brewing for about a week or so now where Bitcoin had clearly sort of lost some of the momentum it had earlier in the year. It hasn't hit an all-time high in over a month. And then this week, you sort of had a couple of things happen. One, last week, Elon Musk, the Tesla CEO, announced that the company would no longer accept Bitcoin as payments for cars, which they had started earlier this year because of some environmental concerns about how much carbon it takes to mine more Bitcoin. And then you had Chinese regulators sort of running their rules against cryptocurrencies, specifically where their financial and payment companies in China couldn't do services for cryptocurrency trading. So those are sort of the, the two main catalysts that people saw this week. But the cryptocurrency bull run for Bitcoin in particular had sort of stalled out over the last month. Let's talk a little bit more about Tesla and Elon Musk, because he seems to be tied so much to cryptocurrency. Whenever he tweets something, says something, there's ups and downs. Dogecoin, obviously one of his favorites, he mm -hmm. mentions it somewhere and, you know, people go start buying. Tell me a little bit about how much Elon figures into this whole thing. It's hard to say exactly how much he should be held responsible for wild swings in these sort of assets, but it's pretty clear that he does have an effect, whether that is from sort of fans of his on the internet and fans of Tesla sort of following his lead and buying these stocks or these cryptocurrencies sort of as a way to show their support for him, or whether it's bigger money people also sort of trying to get in on that, right? Once in financial markets, anytime you have something that sort of works as a signal, like an Elon tweet or a mention on Saturday Night Live, you have bigger money people who are going to try and get in and take advantage of that pattern as best they can. And so, you know, whether Elon is goading these moves into happening, I think is sort of hard to say specifically, but his changing mood with regards to one cryptocurrency or another are definitely a signal of how they will trade in the near future. What do we make of these other cryptocurrencies that we hear about, you know, Dogecoin being one of them and some of these smaller ones that people are just getting in, buying it when it's super cheap, hoping that it kind of rises up, you know, the say, as the saying goes, to the moon and all that. But with Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and, and those types of things, you know, they're actually being used to buy things. There's a marketplace for them. With a lot of these other ones, there really isn't some of that infrastructure set up. So what does that do to the market for bigger cryptocurrencies? Part of the story of why Bitcoin and Ethereum or Ether in particular have gone up over the past year is that companies and institutions on the mainstream have gotten comfortable with them. Big name investors, you have companies like Tesla and banks and payment companies that are either buying Bitcoin or they are creating ways for their clients to trade and use Bitcoin on their platforms. And so it's kind of given it this extra stamp of approval from institutions. The moves from these smaller ones like Dogecoin, which was specifically started as a joke, and some of the other ones that sort of pop up and go off on any given day sort of undermines that case a little bit. And I think when you wonder why is Dogecoin going up, think of it less of cryptocurrency is gaining this mainstream acceptance among financial institutions and more like some of the speculative trading we've seen this year in stocks like GameStop or AMC. Back to China for a moment, you know, they're developing their own government-run cryptocurrency. How does that figure into this equation if they kind of stamp out, regulate some of the other things like Bitcoin and all that, you know, to prop up their own 
cryptocurrency more? How does that figure into the larger picture? Well, China is certainly seems to be the most aggressive in terms of developing a uh, cryptocurrency run by their central bank. Other governments in Europe and even the U.S. Have, are at least exploring the idea. So if central banks around the world get a particularly aggressive with that, even going as far as China is in terms of banning the services for them or even less far where they're just more heavily regulated, you could definitely see the crypto and the blockchain technology gain sort of this mainstream everyday acceptance, even if some of these early mover coins end up sort of getting regulated to the sideline. Jesse Pound, markets and investing reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And there again, their results, you know, there's no scientific study behind it, but their individual trials showed a a sensitivity of 95%. And that convinced the hospital CEO to give it a try and hire her. Joining us now is Ruth Bender, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about something we've talked about in the podcast before, very early in these kind of studies that were going on uh, during the pandemic about using dogs to possibly sniff out people that might be infected with COVID-19. There's been a number of studies that have been ongoing, and now the research is starting to mount, and it's showing that dogs can kind of reliably sniff out people that have COVID-19, and people want to use this at, at sporting events, airports, different things. It has a bunch of different applications where, you know, it could be a lot quicker than doing a, even a, one of those a quick tests for COVID. So, Ruth, tell us a little bit about uh, what we're seeing now. Yes, yeah, so a lot of work has been done on this basically since the start of the pandemic. Several researchers, scientists, but also dog trainers, private companies that have done trials and scientific studies. And all of them have found really strong evidence to suggest that the dogs can very reliably detect COVID-19 in humans. There's a, a, the WHO is now coordinating an international group of researchers to advance on this subject. It has over 40 participants already, and they regularly exchange their latest findings to advance faster on actually being able to deploy the dogs around the world. So uh, different countries are in different stages. The, the Emirates has been putting a lot of money um, into this very early, and they're already using the dogs very broadly, police, but also at borders, at malls, at, you know, they have these mobile units that go to crowded living facilities to kind of do an early screening of people and try to really quickly seek out the infected people in clusters and then do additional testing on them. In Europe, they're still testing and there's some trials going on, but a little more hesitant. And in the U.S., we've seen a lot of private companies now using dogs for events as public life gradually resumes. So when these dogs are sniffing out for this, they're sniffing out for sensitivity and specificity. I guess that's how they judge how well they're doing it. So give us some of those numbers. How well are dogs capable of sniffing this out? The numbers vary slightly, but overall, the sensitivity especially, so the capacity of detecting an infection correctly, is sort of between mid, sort of 80 up to almost 100%. So a lot of individual trials have come out at around 95%, which is pretty high. And according to some research we've seen, 
could be higher than some of the antigen rapid tests out there. That's at least what researchers believe that they can detect it more reliably because they are probably able to also detect the virus possibly earlier in the stage of infection than some of these other tests. Right. So there's still some things that need to be defined and, and verified in, in further studies, they say, but the evidence so far is very strong to suggest that they could be super accurate and super fast. Yeah, one of the dogs you mentioned in the story, I think her name is Buffy, she was able to sniff somebody out who had tested negative at the moment, but later came down with it. So kind of getting that scent even before the tests were even able to capture it. So, that, I mean, that's just pretty amazing. And tell us a little bit more about Buffy, because you did talk about her in the piece a little bit. That particular case you mentioned, I think, was actually at one of the other companies. The hospital that's using her in Florida started training her a couple of months ago. She was just a regular dog, and the dog trainer started testing her to sense general smells, odors, and then trained her for a couple of months specifically on COVID-19. And there again, their results, you know, there's no scientific study behind it, but their individual trials showed a, a sensitivity of 95%, and that convinced the hospital CEO to give it a try and hire her. <laughs> so she's around three days a week, and she's at the door. She's with a dog handler, and it's all voluntary. You know, the people who don't like dogs or afraid of them and don't want um, to participate, they don't have to. Right. But basically, she comes and sniffs the shoes, and if she detects a sense that she uh, identifies as COVID positive, then she sits down and she gets a treat and <laughs> the person's then asked to take an additional test. Yeah. And so she's become also kind of a mascot of the hospital. The CEO told me, you know, everybody kind of likes her and she's helped staff and, and visitors again feel a little more comfortable going into a hospital, which for a long time was something very daunting, right? But as you mentioned, you know, a lot of places, well, it's not like a specifically sanctioned thing, these sniffer dogs, a lot of companies and governments are looking forward to using it just because of the speed. I mean, you know, these dogs can kind of sniff out 200 to 300 people in a sitting versus, you know, taking the time to do the nasal swabs and, and, and all that. So the time element is really important with this. Yes, exactly. And I mean, there are still unanswered questions and, you know, governments want to make sure that there's no false results that could be misleading before they really roll it out. So uh, that's why researchers are saying there's still some more testing that needs to be done. But generally, they see this as, as potentially a really effective additional testing method. It's not supposed to replace all the tests we know these days, you know, nasal swabs, uh, rapid antigen, or, or whether it's lab-based testing. But, you know, it could serve as a very quick and efficient and cheap way to screen large crowds of people right. when people return to the movies, when people return to the malls, when people return to concerts. And then when there is a positive case, you can always verify that with additional testing, but you can't do that with 200 people at the same time. Ruth Bender, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.